Let me ask you to turn either in a pew Bible or your own copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up the storyline from that which was read earlier uh, from Luke chapter 1 concerning the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. And now we are a few months further down the road and Elizabeth is pregnant. And this is the account of the birth of John the Baptist and of Zechariah's response, his, uh, his hymn of praise. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word starting at Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord, these words prophesied by Zechariah such centuries ago concerning 
Yes, the birth of the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John, but really pointing once again, O Lord Christ, to you and your entrance and your accomplishments in life upon this earth. Give to us understanding, we pray. Give to us application. Give to us delight and joy in the truth presented here, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, it is this time of the year, the Advent Christmas year season. And of course, my guess is that the great majority of us do something to the interior or maybe even the exterior of our homes in terms of decorations, Christmas trees, wreaths, things of that nature. And uh, it's a time we think about visits and uh, we think about whether you have some acquaintance with visits of old Saint Nick, uh, the visits of family and friends coming. But ultimately, of course, this is, we call it Advent, which speaks of Christ coming into the world. And we have the term that Zechariah uses here that ultimately this is a time when we are reflecting again upon a time when God has visited his people. We are looking at these hymns that Luke records. Luke probably is, best, is, is seen as the, as the church's Christian's first hymnologist. Uh, he's the one who, through his research and interviews with people, gathered these hymns together for his gospel. They are only recorded there. And so we are in the second one. We looked at Mary's hymn of praise last week. And we, if you, just by way of um, being reminded... That was a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. And we, I tried to use, you might say, movement where she looked at herself, so to speak, and she was able to give thanks to God for his personal dealings in her life. She, you might say, raised her eyes to heaven and gave thanks and praise to God for his perfect attributes. Her hymn mentions several of those. She then, you might say, looked and scanned over uh, times of history and cultures, and she picked up on God's performance in history of putting down the proud and the arrogant and raising up the humble. And then, of course, she praised God that he was keeping his words, uh, his promises, ancient words going all the way back to Father Abraham 2,000 years prior. So that's something of a review of that hymn. And now we come to this event with uh, Zechariah. And what we're going to do, uh, Zechariah, of course, is praising God uh, for the manifold blessings of his visit, of God's visit to his people. And we're going to look at, at truths here under the idea of, of, you might say, a picture or an ornament or something like that. In other words, I'm going to mention five things to you that arise out of Zechariah's song. And uh, 
in my mind at least, to help me remember them and apply them. I tried to think in terms of if you were going into your home decorating it, maybe putting a picture, that, that Advent or that Christmas picture on a wall. And so maybe that will help you. Maybe if some of you children are here with a scratch pad, maybe it'll help you pay attention to think through uh, what, what pictures we're talking about at the moment. Maybe all of that will make sense as we begin now. So, five things. When God visits his people, Zechariah tells us there is liberty. There is liberty. There is the opening of the prison door. Where do you get that? Well, he starts out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, and here's the key word, and redeemed his people. That's the key theological term, redeemed, redemption. That term speaks about the releasing of a prisoner or the liberating of a slave from bondage by the payment of a ransom price. Here is somebody maybe in debtor's prison and some friend, some family member comes and says, you can't get out unless you pay the $10,000, the $20,000. I'm here to pay it. And it's paid. And the prison door swings open. And out he goes into freedom. That's the picture that is here. And you might, whatever scene you have there, putting that picture on the wall of the opening of the prison door, like, like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, the angel comes, they're in captivity, not knowing exactly what God is going to do, but God visits them. And there is liberty, there is the opening of the prison door. Well, you say, well, Bill, I've, I've never been in prison. Well, let me remind you, I... I often find our confessional documents very helpful because they, in a concise way, mention my problems. Listen to this from our Confession of Faith on Christian Liberty. It says, The liberty which Christ has purchased, remember this idea of a price being paid to set us free. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in our freedom. What do we need freedom for? Listen to this. The guilt of sin. How can I get rid of the guilt of my sin? The condemning wrath of God. Paul will write in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. The curse of the moral law, Paul writes in Galatians, cursed is everyone who would seek to be justified by the law. In their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin, from the, it's interesting, so precise. We don't get delivered from afflictions themselves, but he says, it says we get delivered from the evil of afflict, afflictions. The sting of death, the victory of the grave. The grave does not have a victory any longer. And everlasting damnation. 
you may have never set foot in an actual prison, but before you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you, you were in bondage. And Zechariah says, hallelujah, what is coming now but the redemption of God's people. Jesus accused the Jews. They, they had that idea. Uh, Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, 31 and following, he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? And Jesus said to them with that great introductory formula, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And on it goes. But what we have here is you got to love Charles Wesley uh, in terms of his hymn, And Can It Be? Stanza four is, is exactly what Zechariah is, is speaking of here, that God has visited his people and redeemed them. That stanza four says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound. It's an imprisoned spirit, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the first picture that is here. When God visits his people, there is liberty. And we need to apply these things. The child of God can never use the excuse, well, I just can't help it. I've got to sin in this occasion. No, that's a denial, you see, of your redemption by Christ. Our Savior has come and visited us in the bondage of sin and iniquity, of greed, of envy, of anger, of fear, of gossip, of all those things. And he set us free. We don't have to go down that road. When God visits his people... There is liberty. The second one, when God visits his people, there is victory. The winning of our battles. Where do you get that? Well, he goes on. Not only has God visited and redeemed his people, but he's raised up, he says in verse 69, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So the horn of salvation was an image. And you've got to remember, this, is, this imagery comes all the way out of the Old Testament. And so if you think about that uh, agrarian kind of culture, farming, raising of livestock. Uh, and of course, we, we sense it even today when we might, through television or whatever means, watch a bull fight. Um, or to see bulls in the field or whatever. Do you want to really be in front of an angry bull? Well, I'm, I'm sure the answer is no. You see those sharp horns. That, that horn was for the actual animal. It was his weapon. It was the way he protected himself. It was the way he defeated any opponents. And so it becomes a, a, a metaphor of 
of God's rulers, often the kings and such, but here particularly of the Messiah to come. God has raised up a horn, this instrument, this person of strength. Divine power in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is saving power, it's redeeming power, it's conquering power. The horn is a powerful person in whom God will accomplish the salvation and redemption of all his people. We now know his name as Jesus of Nazareth. So the key theological term here is is salvation. It's a horn of salvation. And so salvation does not denote escapism from our opponents. By the way, they're mentioned at least three times here. Uh, The horn of salvation is raised up. But look at 71. He says that we should be, it's a horn of salvation. And so in 71, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand, here second reference, of all who hate us. And then in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And so Zechariah understands this great person coming to be this horn of salvation, this person that will deliver us. And what might be the scene on your picture, the one that I thought about, maybe some of you younger folk, uh, maybe most of us understand. I thought, my immediate thought, I I like the uh, uh, Aragorn and... uh, the hobbits and those kinds of things. And maybe we think about those forces of Aragon before the black gates, toward the the final battle. And all appears to be lost. Everyone seems to be going down. The enemies seem too massive, too strong. And then what happens? Help comes from the ring getting tossed into the lake of fire. And victory comes from another person, from an outside source. However you would hang that picture in your house. Shorter Catechism, question 26 says, How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us. First, he's got to conquer us, and praise God he does. Conquering us, subduing us to himself. In ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. What are our enemies? Well, I think the best summary is still that trilogy, the world, our own sinful flesh that remains and the devil. But John will write in his first letter in 1 John 4, 3, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, he says, which you heard was coming and that now now is in the world. The spirit that says Christ has not come in the flesh, the spirit of the Antichrist. And he goes on and says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, how do we apply this? The application is clearly stated in Zechariah's song. Look at verses 74 and 75. He's mentioned the horn of salvation being raised. 
He's mentioned the idea of victory over enemies. We have liberty from our first picture. And now he concludes in 74, he says, all of this that we're being delivered, all this deliverance is for what purpose? And every word really becomes important. That I might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And to personalize it, all my days, I'm set free. I'm given liberty. Enemies are conquered that I might serve, worship, obey, follow the Lord, serve him, doing so with confidence, not timidly. God, Paul says, in Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and a sound mind and of love. We serve God without fear, evidencing more and more a holiness and righteousness of life all our days. Whatever days the Lord would give us, that is what he has done in this second picture of what happens when God visits his people. Well, the third picture, when God visits his people, there is forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness. The canceling of our debt. And you see that in verse 77. Now, what, what, to, what, what is striking here is you would think that Zechariah's song here is largely, and all, or you might think it should be exclusively, about John the Baptist. What's really interesting is Zechariah has had some time to reflect on this. These months have passed. And we see already that the structure of this song of his is mostly about the Lord Jesus and what God is going to do through his son. But you had a reference in verse, you finally get a reference to John in verse 76. And you, child, well, now John is finally being referred to. And in that, John is going to be the forerunner of Jesus. He's the prophet of the Most High, and he's going to go before and prepare the ways. But between their joint ministries, so to speak, the ministry of John and certainly that of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God visits his people, there is the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. There's our key term, the forgiveness of sins. A Greek term that talks about the taking away, the sending away. There is that wonderful Old Testament reference that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God separated our sins from us, <coughs> blotting them out. Never remembering them again. Isaiah 43, 25. So I don't know what you want your picture on the wall to look like. Maybe it's a ledger book of all the evil thoughts and words and actions you've done. That total record of all your sin being run through a shredder and burned. I don't know. But the picture you need to have is that it is gone. It is completely, totally gone and destroyed. 
What is the source of that? It is clearly stated in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Zechariah accentuates the word mercy is there. And the mercy of God, in a sense, would be enough. But he adds a, another term that says, oh, this, this, this is compassionate mercy. This is, this is mercy that reaches down to people like you and like me. How does this happen? I want to read to you. We're we're a congregation that knows about the Lord Jesus being our substitute. He bears the guilt of our sin. In my preparation, I was directed to Luther's commentary on Galatians, particularly Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, which reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Listen to Luther's comments. Now you got to understand, if you haven't read much of Luther, he's very earthy and very, um, uh, almost exaggerates the point. But I want you to hear it because it came through so clearly to me. And hopefully it will to you. He says, Paul does not say that Christ was made a curse for himself. The accent is on the two words for us. Christ is personally innocent. Personally, he did not deserve to be hanged for any crime of his own doing. But because Christ took the place of others who were sinners, he was hanged like any other transgressor. The law of Moses leaves no loopholes. It says that a transgressor should be hanged. Who are the other sinners? We are. The sentence of death and everlasting damnation had long been pronounced over us. But Christ took all our sins and died for them on the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many from Isaiah 53. Listen to this statement. All the prophets of old said that Christ should be the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. When he took the sins of the world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. He was a sinner burdened with the sins of a Paul who was a blasphemer. Burdened with the sins of a Peter who denied Christ. Burdened with the sins of a David who committed adultery and murder and gave the heathen occasion to laugh at the name of Christ. The curse struck him. The law found him among sinners. Now we know that he was innocent in and of himself. And Luther says that. But as I read those words, does not that come to you with a force and a power that gives you the the hope, the faith, the confidence to say, 
Yes, Luther has it right. He bore my sins, my curse. That is how God justly looks at you and me. And through faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. Well, the fourth thing, we've said that when God visits his people, there is liberty. When God visits his people, there is um, victory. When God visits his people, there is forgiveness. The fourth point from Zechariah is when God visits his people, there is light and peace. The next image that he uses is in verses 78 and 79. And he speaks about, I'll pick it up there, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What might the picture look like if you're hanging it on the wall of your house, this Advent picture? Maybe it's that simple picture of of a dark valley. And yet, here comes the dawn. The sun is rising over the mountains and the valley is being filled with the light that the sun brings upon all those in that dark valley. Who or what is this sunshine that visits us? Well, the obvious answer is the Lord Jesus, and we have support for that. Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, But for you who fear my name, the sun, the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have what? They have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And Jesus, of course, in Revelation twenty two sixteen says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star, the sun. What is the purpose of this visit of the sunrise? Well, it is, of course, to shine that light upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Darkness, not only throughout the scriptures, but really the world over, especially speaks of about four conditions. It'll often sometimes be used about the condition of ignorance, we say, someone's in the dark about this truth. It's often that done about impurities, sins. Certainly we think about sorrow and sadness. Well, you know, this person has a dark, uh, dark things have happened to this person. And then the fourth category is death itself often accompanied with the idea of darkness. And those who sit, it says, those who sit refers, see, we'll put it in our own words, but a people that are, that are utterly helpless, it seems. They're tired. They're worn out. 
They're giving up the struggle. They're hopeless. They're sitting in darkness, down in some deep pit, perhaps, some great valley. And what Zechariah says is that when God visits his people, it comes as the sun of righteousness. The sunrise from on high and it shatters the darkness. It dispels the darkness. It dispels the shadow of death and, and brings hope. It's one of the key concepts to me that comes out of this. Hope and of course specifically stated the last word. The way of peace of wholeness, of completeness, of security, all of that which the Jewish person thought about in that word shalom, of peace. Our Lord Jesus rightly said several times, I am the light of the world. Do you know something of these things? Do we know in our own hearts today pardon for sin, the assurance of that, that Christ becoming a curse for us, taking away our sins? Do we know hope? Do we see in Christ the shattering of our doubts and fears? Do, uh, light, do we see this, this do we have the sense of Him as sunshine coming into our hearts and granting peace. The last one, I said there were five. The last one comes from the book of Revelation. I thought, this speaks of Christ's coming, Advent. And it's that great text. When God visits His people... There is liberty, there is victory, there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is peace. When God visits His people, there is communion and it's possible today. It's that text to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, 20. Jesus says to that church, this is decades later than of course His birth and His ministry. He is the risen King. And he says, Behold, I stand, present tense, at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There's the renewing of that relationship that's possible today of communion with the living Christ who is the conquering king, who is the sunrise from on high, who is the substitute for my sin, who is the liberator of my bondage. He says, today can be a day when you commune with me if you will lay down your opposition to me and receive me by faith and repentance into your own life. And that's a word For those of you who may be here who do not know the Savior, who have not yet closed with Him, but it's a word for all of us. This was spoken to a church. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone 
anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and there will be fellowship. Zechariah saw that while this was a comprehensive salvation, that it has come into this world through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? Let us pray.